Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, world's first law on health labeling of alcohol introduced in Ireland. But will it make a difference to our drinking habits? Gardaí say they're taking a different approach to other European forces when dealing with refugee protests. The other piece, and, uh, and it's a classic part of their playbook, is an over-response by the authorities of the state, i.e. in Garda Shikana. We are not going to fall into that trap. And later, can Ireland meet its zero HIV targets by 2030? You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, Gardaí say they're investigating after an alleged assault of a man in his 70s in Currafin in County Clare last night. Virgin Media News correspondent Richard Chambers joins me now with the latest. Richard, what more can you tell us? Yeah, well, Claire, this alleged assault happened in a, a locality called School outside Currafin uh, last night. The man who was in his 70s uh, was taken to University Hospital Limerick after, after ringing Gardaí and an ambulance himself. Uh, he sustained facial injuries. He was discharged from hospital today, very badly shaken up by the alleged assault. Uh, he suffered effectively very, very bad bruising around his eye. Now, this man who's in his late 70s, as I say, has been described by people in the area as a well-liked member of the community, uh, very much engaged in community matters for decades now at this point in time. And the alleged assault happened uh, at the same time as a protest was being held outside a property, which uh, organisers of the demonstration believed would be ring-fenced for asylum seeker accommodation. Now, there is actually a bit of claim and counterclaim as to whether or not that property outside Currafin is actually going to be used for asylum seeker accommodation. Uh, people, including Senator Timmy Dooley of Fianna Fáil, say it is not. There's no contract in place regarding asylum seeker accommodation. Uh, but there has been a real big shake-up really locally about the news uh, of this alleged assault, which Gardaí say they're currently investigating, uh, that their inquiries are ongoing. They're yet to formally interview uh, the man at the centre of this. Again, as I say, a pensioner, a man in his 70s, uh, who lives nearby to the site uh, where this protest was taking place. Now, uh, judging by uh, speaking to people in the area who were there at the time, uh, they say that there were people who were local at that protest as well as people who were not from the locality as well but I can tell you as well there was a counter protest really in solidarity uh, with the uh, victim of this alleged assault which took place nearby uh, in Currafin this evening uh, really a lot of um, anxiety a lot of stress about this alleged assault uh, effectively the man here uh, it's understood he's alleged to have been hit in the face with a torch or an implement like a torch uh, so people in the area very badly shaken up about this obviously it happens uh, off the back of what has happened in Inchon County Clare recently, about 20 kilometres uh, down the road to the south. But uh, the man is home, as I say, uh, but he is badly shaken up by what's happened. OK, Richard, uh, thank you for bringing us up to date on that story. Richard Chambers, Virgin Media News correspondent there. Well, moving on now, and Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly has signed into law new regulations <coughs> which will require 
all alcohol products to state their calorie content and the number of grams of alcohol in the product. The regulations will also require that all labels warn about the risk of consuming alcohol when pregnant, as well as the risk of liver disease and fatal cancers. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by the Irish Mirror political correspondent, Louise Byrne, Fine Gael Senator, Garrett Ahern, CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland, Sheila Gilhini, and owner of Hugo's <laughs> restaurant, Gina Murphy. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Louise, to come to you first on this, um, it's being dubbed a world first, and this comprehensive labelling of alcohol products. It has been signed into law by uh, the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, today. Um, what essentially is, is it going to mean and how soon are we going to see those labels on bottles of wine and bottles of beer and alcohol products? So what's interesting about this is that Minister Donnelly did sign it into law this morning. However, there's going to be a three-year lead-in time, which means we won't see these labels until May 2026. And like you said there, it's things like labels going on bottles. So it'll tell you stuff like calorie counts, how many grams of alcohol are in a bottle. Um, it'll contain warnings about liver disease, cancer. And <coughs> Minister Donnelly was saying earlier that, you know, alcohol is a very real issue and it's a very real health issue and that one in every 20 deaths in Ireland can actually be linked back to alcohol. So he is coming in for a bit of stick on this from some of the drinks industry saying that he's taken a solo run on this. He doesn't seem to mind. What he is saying is that people need to be informed. People are free to take a drink. People are free to have as many drinks as they want but they need to be informed about the risks that, that carries. So what he's saying is he's pressing ahead with this. If he's upset the drinks industry, he's, up, he's upset <coughs> the drinks industry. That's just the way it is but he's pretty happy that this is going to be a world first and not only that he thinks it's actually going to inspire other people and other countries to follow suit. Uh, I, I, the, the, the reasoning behind it is to give us as consumers a better knowledge of, of what's in that bottle, what's contained in the alcohol and the associated risks. He said it's about informing people and giving them a choice rather than anything else. Yeah and I mean I think we know when you go into a restaurant and you see how many calories is on I don't know, a Big Mac or a burger in a fast food restaurant, it does kind of make you rethink your choices. So perhaps seeing the amount of calories on a drink, a, a pint of beer, a glass of wine, whatever it may be, may make people rethink what they're drinking and perhaps make different choices. And of course, it does come back down to a health thing. And we do know that alcohol, it is a drug. And like any other drug, it does have effects on people. So I think once people are informed and they can make those choices, they will make whatever choices they want, but at least they know what they're getting themselves into. OK, well, that's certainly the argument um, from government on all of this. Um, Sheila, as somebody who works in the area of you know, um, advocating about safe alcohol use and maybe, you know, deterring people um, from, from drinking alcohol. From a public health point of view, do you believe that this is a landmark move, this signing into law of labelling across all drink products? Yeah, I certainly do think that it is a really important measure that has been taken. We would very much look on it as a right to know issue. Um, exactly as we've just been saying, people actually don't really know the risks, you know, from alcohol. So, ex for example, if we were talking about the risk from uh, alcohol in relation to cancer, only about one in five would actually know about that particular link. So that's, you know, a particular thing. And yet a thousand people every year will get a diagnosis of cancer, which actually arises as a result of, of alcohol. Yeah, you might just give us an indication, um, because on, on these bottles we're going to have drinking alcohol causes liver disease. Uh, it's also going to be stated that there is a direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers. Tell us a bit about that link that you say many people simply aren't aware of. Yeah, so alcohol is a, a carcinogen, and we've known that for nearly 40 years. But 
when I say we've known that in the health community, community the WHO would have uh, characterised alcohol as a class one carcinogen in the same category as asbestos or tobacco. But that information is really not widely known and people tend to think, you know, oh, well, you know, even if there is a risk, surely that's only if you're drinking at very high levels. But actually, um, you know, the, the level of risk, even from one to two glasses a day, is quite significant. So of those, you know, thousand-odd cancers that we would, 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 would know would, would occur, probably about a third of them would be from drinking one to two glasses a, a day. So that's, yeah. that's something just to, to bear in mind. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because we know with, say, labelling on, on cigarette packs that we know that there's no small amount that is OK for you to smoke. But with alcohol it's not altogether clear for people if they have a glass of wine. We also hear of the health benefits of maybe drinking a glass of red wine, high in antioxidants and all those other, other things that we hear about from some scientific reviews. But you're saying any amount of alcohol is inherently damaging, yeah, Sheila. So the, so the World Health Organization actually would have made a very clear statement that there is no health benefits to be got from alcohol. The alcohol industry is actually always very keen to kind of say, oh, surely there's some benefits, and they're always trying to dredge up things. And you hear uh, stuff being regurgitated, which are simply not true. So, you know, going with what the World Health experts would say on this, there is no safe level of, of alcohol use. People will talk about a low-risk uh, approach, you know, to alcohol. We're certainly not talking about mm. banning it or prohibition. We're, what we really would like to see is people having clear information about their, their risks. And it's not even so much, will, will this definitely change mm. people's, um, you know, consumption habits? What we think is it'll give them the choice. OK, it's about people giving people a choice, uh, Gina. Your take on it as, on someone who's running a restaurant um, is offering wine, obviously, with every meal, full wine list and, 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 and other alcohol. Um, do you think it'll make people think twice before ordering a bottle of wine? Uh, or or do, you, do you think it's problematic or going to be a challenge for your industry? I, I don't think on the restaurant side of things it's a really big problem because um, wine or alcohol in a restaurant environment is really a complementary thing to the food. The food is the main ingredient of what we offer within our four walls. Um, also, too, when somebody orders wine, they order it from a list. We do come and we present the bottle and they do get to see it, but they, you know, the scrutinisation of the label wouldn't be as in-depth as if you were, say, in a supermarket or something where you would actually physically pick something up. So I think this will have a bigger impact on the retail trade rather than the restaurant trade. Um, but if I may say, most um, alcohol consumption, well, I would like to think, happens to, you know, in people who are over 18. Um, that's the legal age for drinking. We need to be educating people before that. This needs to happen when people are, you know, when the kids are in school to tell them about it. Teaching somebody something at 18 when, you know, we all know, we've all, you know, tried it or messed around with it. I mean, so it, it's about education. It's, it's the same as food. You've got to teach people how to appreciate things, how to deal with them with respect. And if you um, bring that into the psyche of, of the society, mm -hmm the binge drinking side of things should ebb off. You know, that that whole side of things. And um, while I completely agree with the WHO and all that, there will always be winemaking. There will always be that. So, but it's to do it in measured tones okay. and with respect. So you don't think that this is, this, is, this is a measured approach in your view? I do. And actually, you know, the, all information is good and all information is educational. So um, I, I don't, I'm not against this. No, I'm not. But I'm saying I don't think it will really affect the restaurant industry.
Okay. And do you believe, though, that people will, I suppose, essentially ignore that label? If they're not, if they're over 18 and they're looking at a bottle of wine, do you believe, insofar as the damage is already done or people are already aware of the risks, that adding a label to a bottle of wine won't make much difference? Is that your view on it? No. I'm, what I'm saying is if we can educate people younger as to these things, then when they get to the stage where they're examining the bottle of wine, they know what they're seeing. They know the value of the label. They know what they're reading. I'm just saying that education is the key to this. A label mm -hmm. isn't going to change everything. Okay. Education in our society will start making right. the changes. Um, Gareth, just to bring you in on this, Drinks Ireland, which is the representative body for the drinks industry, has accused the Department of Health of railroading um, this new legislation and says the government must explain why it is doing a solo run on alcohol labels when the EU is already planning a harmonised approach or coming together, that we are sort of going out on a limb. We are doing this without full processes being being followed. That's what they're saying. What would you say to that? Well, well I disagree. Like the, the very first public um, uh, health legislation on alcohol that was done was when the Taoiseach was Minister for Health himself. That had to do with uh, min mm. minimum unit pricing, restrictions on adverts, separation in shops. So this has been an ongoing process and this is, this is the next stage of it. You know, essentially this is a public health measure. Uh, when you look at the numbers in A&E, the numbers going through courts, all because of alcohol related. Mm -hmm. You know, th this measure's in place is to protect against that. Do you think it'll work? Well, I hope so, you know, I like- I mean, do you think having a warning saying, you know, there are associated risks with, um, with cancer, um, if you drink alcohol, it's linked to liver disease. Do you think someone will, will look at that label and say, you know what, I'm, instead of having, you know, one, one, <coughs> one, one bottle of beer or whatever, I'm, instead of having, you know, a few, I'll, I'll just drink one or I'll take it easy tonight or I'll, I'll have a glass less of well, wine. It's, it's, not, it's not about whether everyone looks at it and changes their ways. It's about giving people all of the information of what they're consuming. So in terms of health information, it's the, it's the amount of calories that are in it. It's the amount of grams of mm. alcohol that are in it. In terms of health warning, it's in terms of warning uh, to people who are pregnant, uh, warnings, the, the cancerous uh, uh, health warnings, fatal warnings uh, that people can have from alcohol. So essentially what government are trying to do is give people all of the information before they purchase the product. We're not saying it will change everything overnight, but essentially what it does is it gives people the information. All right. Um, we're going to have a little listen now to something that the Taoiseach had to say. He was on uh, the podcast Leading with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, which was released today. And he was asked about alcohol and the effect that it has here in Ireland. Uh, take a listen to what he had to say. Can I just ask you one final question, which also relates to some of your previous job, and that is about Ireland's relationship with alcohol, hmm. which you've taken on. And it's just that the Scottish government did felt they had a particular yeah. problem. What, how, how, how would you assess Ireland's relationship with alcohol? A, a deeply problematic relationship, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who, who drinks, by the way, and sometimes I drink too much. And it is a very, very powerful drug. And we don't acknowledge it as that. It changes your personality and makes people do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And a huge amount of violence uh, in Ireland, public order offences, Violence against children, sexual violence uh, is linked to alcohol, a huge amount of long-term illness, and we discount that. And we also sometimes find it hard to socialize or have any sort of social occasion without the presence of alcohol. And that's one of the big differences, by the way, when I go to an Indian event, um, almost always a family event, almost always children there, very rarely any alcohol. Uh, what do you make, um, Sheila, of that take from the Taoiseach on that? Uh, do you find it sort of refreshing um, an, an, an honest approach there, you know, he admits himself that, you know, he's 
he's on occasion had too much alcohol and that we do have a problem with it in this country. We, we, we do, and there's any number of statistics that would you know, dem demonstrate that. One of the things, though, that drives our you know, use of alcohol is the level of marketing to which we're exposed. And, and while I understand when people say, oh, surely education would be the answer, Sadly, education is not the answer because the amount of marketing that we see in a year, we get about 115 million euros worth of alcohol advertising. No amount of education can actually overcome that level of marketing that we see. And that's why you need a kind of combined um, approach mm. which uses measures around restrictions on advertising, pricing, labelling is one part of that. Uh, that, that You're element. saying it's part of a whole suite of it's measures part of that the are whole coming thing. on There's board. no single one thing uh, that will. Louise, will there work. will be these accusations, though, that you know, while we need to be educated and we may need to be informed, you know, those that would say this is sort of nanny state again. This is telling us what we do. If I want to have a glass of wine and enjoy a glass of wine, do I need a big label across the bottle of wine telling me that I, you know? shouldn't drink when I'm pregnant, and most people probably wouldn't drink when they're pregnant, that I do know it's associated with liver disease. And yes, look, I know there's a cancer risk. Well, perhaps it's not aimed at those people. Perhaps it's aimed at the people who don't know. And I think, you know, perhaps it, maybe it is a step too far, but I don't see what, what harm it could do. The interesting thing I do think is this is coming at a time when we're talking about opening nightclubs till 6.30 in the morning. We're talking about, you know, extending pub hours. It kind of seems to be giving up one hand and taking away with the others, you know, extending the hours that people have to drink, but yet also at the same time warning them not to. So I think it's coming at a really interesting time and it's kind of a juxtaposition, yeah, really. Potential mixed messages there, Gareth. That's well, one of the no, accusations really, around really, this. And we want to loosen up licensing laws on one hand, and at the same time... Well, there's a know, couple of things. On, on the licensing laws, models. that's not right across the country. That's only in certain areas. Uh, it's to stop early drinking, binge drinking, uh, people who are trying to race before the end of, uh, the end of ser uh, serving. Um, and essentially, it's to, stop uh, it's to create a staggering of departing uh, venues. Because... You have the obvious situation where a closing time happens at two or a half two at night. Mm -hmm. Everyone's uh, uh, leaving a venue at the exact same time, causes antisocial behaviour yeah. problems, uh, and that's why the legislation is there. Sheila shaking her head. I have there. to say, all the evidence shows that when you increase um, uh, licensing hours, what you do is you move the problem further in, into the night. And we have very clear evidence from many sources. I'll just name you a couple to start off with. Amsterdam found that for every extra hour of licensing hours that were opened, they saw a 34% increase in, in uh, hospital admissions um, from, from, from right. violence. Uh, Gina, as somebody who works, I suppose, in the hospitality industry, is it something that you'd welcome around licensing laws? You know, given that, uh, what Louise is saying, potentially that there's sort of mixed messages maybe being sent out to the public and also to the industry. Well, I think, first of all, you have to um, treat the adult population with a little bit of respect here, too. Not everybody goes out to drink and get drunk, OK? So people go out to socialise. We all work different hours. I finished work at 2 o'clock the other morning. Like, what am I going to do? Go for a run? Do you know what I mean? So, do you know what I mean? I would have, I would have loved to have been able to go somewhere and sit down and have a drink and unwind. But that's, that's just me and that's besides. Not everybody goes out to get drunk. And that has to be respected too. But also, I just want to clarify, I'm not saying um, anything other than one of the measures that should come on board here is the education um, of our young people. Same as with cigarettes. You know, look what's happened. We have really stemmed the use of cigarettes by doing this. All education is good. The labelling, I don't have a problem with it. 
I, I actually so you get bottles of wine because there were actually there was there was talk today with these smaller importers and in countries that are showing exactly. great opposition to it, Italy, France, and elsewhere, that the labels mightn't come in with the product, and that you may be in a position of putting labels on the bottle well, of wine. I think, How would you feel about that? Well, I think where this has to be looked at in context, we deal with a lot of very small family-run suppliers, and they would have the same label for all their wine for all over the world, and now they're going to have to have a separate label just for. That's not true, actually. So just to say that there are already countries which have different labelling uh, requirements. So in America, for example, they do have to give a pregnancy warning and France also has that. So yes, we have already got variations, you know, in this. And this is just one more label. And I think very often the industry will always try to point towards, oh, this would be terrible for small no, producers I'm not, at, I'm not at saying, that. You I'm know. not saying that. I'm just saying it's an extra burden. I'm not saying it's terrible. I think you're picking me up wrong on quite a few things here. I'm not against this. I really am not. Mm. Um, but I'm just thinking it has to be looked at in a, in a very overall approach. There are other measures that can be put in tandem with this to help with the problem that we have in this country. So it's not just about a label. The label, bring it on. I, I have no issue All with right. it. OK, well, there we will leave that for now. But my thanks uh, to Sheila and to Gina. But coming up after the break, are Garthi passive when policing the far right? Do stay with us. Welcome back. Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has said the Garda have decided not to take a more robust intervention at the scene of protests over refugee accommodation like other European police forces, as these had not been successful. Well, to discuss this, Irish Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, Fine Gael Senator Garrett O'Hearn and social activist Ruth Coppinger uh, now joins me in studio. You're very welcome along. Um, Ruth, um, let's talk about this, Louise, and what Drew Harris had to say, because there's been a build-up First of all, to this, this meeting and these discussions that the Justice Minister Simon Harris would have with Drew Harris. And then the spotlight has really been on the guard that approached these protests that we have seen in Dublin and in Clare um, that, that continue right up until the weekend. So the, the, their, their handling of these protests has really been in the spotlight, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of commentary about this over the weekend. And I suppose this was the first time that we had seen Guard Commissioner Drew Harris was today. We'd heard about this meeting, like you said, with mm. the Justice Minister, but we hadn't actually seen him. And there was a lot of questions about the Guardies' handling of these far-right protests. I think there's a lot of questions surrounding the Sandwich Street incident. You know, where were the guards when those tents were set on fire? Mm -hmm. um, there was suggestions that people were boarding buses in Inch and Clare, counting asylum seekers. And I think a lot of the questions were, were where are the guards? Now, Drew Harris said to me earlier that the guards did not let anyone board any buses in Clare to count heads. If, if people had got onto buses, well, then there was no part that the Gardaí played um, in Sandwich Street, he was saying, you know, it's not just one group that they had to police, it was a second group of counter-protesters and they, the guards felt that they had to get them away from the scene. So they were looking after them and unfortunately the tents were burnt down where they were elsewhere. So I think that was a lot of the questions for Joe Harris, but he very much stood by the policing of these protests. He said that they weren't going to, quote, play into the hands of the far right, that they have a couple of kind of things in their playbook that they want the guards to do. And mm -hmm. one of them is over-policing and this kind of, you know, that to be seen to come down really hard on these protesters. <clears throat> and Joe Harris said, look, we're not going to do that. We have an eye on the long view, is what he said, and we're going to police this how we see fit. And mm -hmm. over-policing is not how we're going to do this because that will just give them what they want, basically. Uh, Ruth, 
Coppinger, your view on this, um, Drew Harris saying really, you know, if you take a more subtle approach to this, it works better. So we had um, the case in, in Clare that he said was um, resolved within a week. That he said was an example of successfully uh, policing a situation. Um, what do you take from this approach that is different to what you will see in other European, European countries around the issue? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Of these protests. I think most people in the country were gobsmacked to hear the commissioner's words today. Um, to, to think it's a, it's a success, that it takes a week, you know, to sort out a protest. But this does not make any sense because in Sandwich Street, there was an arson attack that wasn't even properly followed up after, how would that have encouraged the far right? It wasn't something that was being done while they were in situ. It took three days for a whole host of politicians to comment either. So this is a statewide response. The far right has been treated in a completely different way to socialists, to protesters. I'll give you a couple of examples of the double standard, right? The Debenhams workers. I was on picket lines with the Debenhams workers where you know, any time that they would block a truck or, or talk to the, the workers to, to ask them not to go in to take the stock away, which they were using as leverage for the redundancy payments, the guards were down, you know, pronto. Mm. We were lifted off those picket lines mm -hmm. physically within, um, you know, hours. The water charges, everybody knows the response there. Uh, the water charge protesters were ISIS. But all of a sudden, these protesters have been treated with kid gloves. What do you uh, think should happen? Here, Ruth, and you've aired your grievances about what happened in other protests and the approach that Gardaí took there. Do you think that that same approach should be meted out then to uh, groups who are protesting at, at migrant camps and elsewhere? Well, I, you know, people have a right to protest. But what's, what we've seen is minorities, you know, being completely endangered by the actions of people mm. who, you know, bear hatred towards them. You know... People did get on a bus, and if the Gardaí weren't there, well, why weren't they there? That's very unusual. That's very okay. strange. But in Santry, we had food delivery workers being stopped yesterday from bringing food into the refugees. There's been an ongoing protest at the airport. Now, why is this? And I think it's a deliberate mm. message to immigrants not to come to this country. And it's a useful scapegoat that the, this government mm -hmm. seems to be using to have refugees targeted and blamed in this way for the housing crisis. Uh, Garda Hearn, where do you draw the line on this? Well, what doesn't make sense in Ruth's argument is the examples that she's giving where Gardaí have been over, have used over force um, at protests. When those happened at the time, she was the very first one out criticising Gardaí for being overhanded. 
and now she's using those as examples that that's what they should be doing in this case. But that that just doesn't make sense. I think we need no, to remember. I, I, I think we that. need to remember that we have a police service, not a police force. And the commissioner Drew Harris has outlined exactly how he thinks we should uh, the, the Gardaí should deal with mm. situations like these. They take them one at a time, very differently. Um, but I don't think anyone shouldn't shouldn't trust what the commissioner uh, has decided to do. He's got years of experience in dealing with these situations, in trying to deflate the tension uh, between the people who've got genuine concerns, okay. people who might like, be coming I mean, from the far I mean, right, and the police. Okay, well, what I want to know, Gareth, is it actually working? I mean, you have the burning of tents, you have protests that are blocking public roads. If anyone else was there, would there have been arrests? Should there have been arrests? Like this hands-off approach, it can only take you so far. Kind of, that's the argument. So if you're going to have more and more of these protests and there's been a hands-off approach to date, you know, yeah. at what point do so, guardies so, step in and do something? So, so, there's, so there's two points to that. So the opposite approach is to, is to be more forceful. We've, we've seen that in other countries, particularly in France, where it hasn't been successful. It's actually backfired on the police over there. Um, and, and secondly, um, you know, like... If, if you're going in on a, uh, aggressively against against those people, uh, it, it can be counterproductive because if you arrest people, uh, you can you can have other local people who 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 will be there in solidarity for those people who are being arrested. And what was already a difficult situation can be much worse. But the, the examples you've cited are two or three examples. Like there's there's loads of examples where it's been really successful. Communication has been really good. Loads of examples in my own county in Tipperary, in Turles, in Dundrum, in Feddert where people have come into communities, small communities, and it's been really, really successful. And that's because of engagement and, and, okay. and uh, talking to locals. The argument there, uh, Ruth, that we heard from Drew Harris today, today policing uh, by consent, that, that that approach does work to get everybody on board, potentially de-escalate a situation instead of inflaming tensions and creating a maybe counter-narrative that you may see played out in social media and elsewhere. What they've done is they've encouraged every, you know, far-right or conspiracy theorist or fascist to organise a blockade now because that's the message that they've taken. But I would raise, where are these European situations that the commissioner is referring to? Because I haven't seen far-right protests handled in that way. I think what you just referred to was French workers who are fighting for the right their pension rights being attacked by riot police. Uh, I, I, that's the only situation you seem to be, which is completely different. I'm not advocating that. I, I, I actually believe that this is a deliberate policy or else it's clueless. Mm. Which is it? And uh, it must be a deliberate policy because you seem to be defending it. Simon Harris well, said well, we, we, we couldn't even, we like, couldn't Ruth, even Ruth, question you it, even I though hardly in know a more democracy... You than the Garda Commissioner. Surely you trust the Garda Commissioner in his role in dealing with situations well, like just, this. You hardly think you know more than I don't him trust in terms the Garda of, Commissioner as You well. hardly think why, why you know trust, more in policing well, than he well, does. Well, can I answer that? I do not trust the Garda Commissioner. And there's a huge lack of faith in the, in the Garda in this country for a you whole host... You don't trust the Garda now. Sorry, I'll answer the question you asked. For a whole host of reasons, 999 calls not being answered. Mm. Uh, they, they didn't take the softly, softly approach when a young man, George and Kensho, in my constituency... There was an altercation at a supermarket. Within 20 minutes, he was dead. Six bullets fired on his doorstep. You know, how is that the softly, softly community interaction mm. approach? So there is two laws going on here. Right. There's one for some okay. people and one for others. Uh, Louise, on this, um, when, you know, when Drew Harris was talking about this and saying we're not like other European 
forces. Did he, did he give any indication at all that this may change, that we're going to monitor things, keep an eye on how this plays out? Should there be further protests? Should there be more reaction to, say, around you know, migrant centres, around uh, new arrivals in particular towns and villages, that they may review this, they may look at it again and decide to take a different approach? He kind of indicated that you know, things are being monitored, people are being monitored, and he kept mentioning the long-term view, the long-term view, but he didn't necessarily say if that was going to be any different to what they're doing right now. And I think Ruth does have a point, like if people aren't being stopped from holding these protests, well then do other people get emboldened? And I said this to Commissioner Harris and he kind of said no and that the Guardi were dealing with these things. But, you know, we are seeing more and more protests every day. We declared last week, we would in the last few days, Santry in the last couple of days, you know, there's a centre opening in Dunleary, another one in Ranala. Are we going to see these in the coming weeks turn into the next Clare. So I think it is kind of incumbent on Commissioner Harris to lay out what the long-term plan is without kind of giving too much away so it's not the whole operation's completely spoiled. But I think the comments today haven't gone down well with people and I do think that people need to be reassured by the Gardaí mm -hmm. and by Minister Harris as best they can as to what's going on here. Yeah, is there also a point around it, Gareth? Say you have a situation that... Um, if they do take a more subtle approach to policing and policing by consent, that you come across a situation that blows up very quickly and then the Gardaí aren't, aren't resources, aren't resourced, they aren't there in the numbers that are necessary around a given protest that may turn violent. And then it all plays out really badly. Yeah, but Gardaí are well trained for situations that can escalate quite quickly. And in terms of resource... Well, there was criticism around Sandwich Street and, and how, yeah, but, you know, but in, it, in terms it of resourcing, the, the, the Guard Commissioner said himself... People's homes were burnt in that situation. Yeah, but in, in terms of resourcing, the Guard Commissioner uh, said himself that he's satisfied with the amount with the resources that are there. Even though the Taoiseach said otherwise. Yeah, but minister, the Minister for Justice said any resources the Garda Commission and the Garda need is there for them. That's why there's been 2.1 billion put into... Is that a bit awkward into... now in Fine Gael circles, the Taoiseach saying one thing and then um, Simon Harris saying another? Uh, no, no, like it, there's been, uh, there's loads of resources put in to put into the Garda. There's a, there's a thousand new Garda coming uh, through this okay, year. So you disagree with the Taoiseach on that one? No, not at all. No, I just, no, I just think the, the Garda Commissioner said there's no resources that are needed. He's happy with the amount of resources mm. that are there at the moment. So you take him on his word. If he needs more, uh, he'll get it from the from the Minister for Justice. That's not how the rank and file Garda feel, though. They feel that they haven't got the resources, that they haven't got the training. So the question is, what's going to be done about that? If they feel they can't adequately deal with these protests, what's going to be done for them? Because it's their safety on the line at the end of the day. Uh, Ruth, to ask you um, just about taking, uh, just briefly advocating a heavier hand approach, um, could protests not aligned with the far right also find themselves then, you know, targeted as such, arrests being made in order to keep that law and order that you say you're looking for when it comes to the far right protests? Well, uh, I'm not advocating, uh, you know, a heavy handed approach to people protesting. What I am saying is that a double standard has been exposed, but also minorities who are vulnerable black, brown, you know, migrants who are brought here looking for protection, LGBT plus people, other minorities do have a right to be protected from people who are venting hate and violence against them as well. All right, we will leave that there for now. My thanks to Louise, to Gareth and to Ruth. Coming up after the break, Nurse Aoife Cummins will be here to share her story on receiving a HIV diagnosis. Do stay with us.
HIV rates uh, more than doubled in Ireland last year, but what's behind the rise? And can Ireland meet its zero HIV targets by 2030? Well, to discuss this further, uh, we're joined by consultant at St. James's Hospital, Dr. Ashling Loy, creator of the Pause Vibe podcast and HIV activist, Enda McGrattan, nurse Aoife Commons and podcast host, Robbie Lawler. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Thanks for joining me on a Monday night uh, for this part of the show. And Aoife, I want to come to you first because, you know, when I named everybody in this, we're talking about a consultant, um, you know, you've got your podcast where you're, you're engaging with people around, uh, around the issue, around the subject of HIV, and, uh, and I'm talking to you as a nurse, mm -hmm. but you've got your own very personal story with HIV because you were diagnosed in 2020 yourself with HIV. You're yep. in Australia at the time. Yep. Can you tell us a bit about that? Getting the diagnosis was difficult because... My partner found out he had it and then I went to the clinic and we'd only had unprotected sex within a few days of mm. him finding out his diagnosis. So they put me on post-exposure prophylaxis, which is PEP. And I was on that for a month. And then after two weeks, I got tested and I came back negative. So they, you know, they told me to go home, mm. not to worry. I was fine. I was in the clear. And then a week later, I was feeling really unwell, feeling really sick. And I went to the hospital because I was... I just, I couldn't walk. My back was hurting me. I was having rash and flu and fever and they kept sending me home. I had to go into emergency room three times and tell them every time I was in there that I had been exposed to HIV and I thought I had it. And they kept saying, no, there's no way you have it. You had post-exposure prophylaxis. You're definitely negative. This isn't what's happening. Go home. <laughs> so eventually I got admitted to hospital and I was diagnosed with HIV. So you had to fight all the way to get that test and to ultimately get that diagnosis. Yeah. Um, what struck me when I heard your story was that you said you were relieved when you got that diagnosis that it wasn't cancer. Yeah. Because with all the pain and everything you were experiencing, that's what you thought you had. Yeah. And it struck me that when I would think, and maybe many people listening would think, you get a HIV diagnosis, surely that is the worst thing in the world. But you you felt you felt relief when you got yeah, that diagnosis. Yeah, I, I remember being so relieved because they kept telling me that they thought my back pain was a malignancy in my spine. So, and my, my bloods were all over the place and they thought, the first thing they thought was cancer. Even though I was screaming, I think it's HIV. They were like, no, we think it's cancer. So when they came in and told me, no, it's not cancer, but it is HIV. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I don't have cancer. <laughs> Sometimes I think yeah. I'd rather have toenail fungus than HIV <laughs> because these days we're in this golden age of medication mm -hmm. where HIV medication is wonderful and the odds are that people like us living with HIV will live as long a happy and healthy life as people who aren't living with HIV and what's wonderful about Aoife's story for me someone who grew up in the 80s after Rock Hudson had died lived through mm -hmm. all of that shame and stigma around people dying of AIDS to hear someone of Aoife's generation say that they'd rather have AIDS, pardon me, live with <laughs> HIV than have cancer is just an amazing turnaround. It's a great time. Yeah. Do you think it's testimony way, in a way to, to, I suppose, how far we've come, Ashling, and the fact that there are so many like good treatments out there um, yeah. at this point that you can lead a completely normal life. Yeah. And that the, those associations that were de there decades ago around HIV, AIDS, um, that's all changed utterly. Yeah, so it's over 40 years from our first HIV diagnosis in Ireland in 1982, and we've come a huge way from then. So back then, you know, people would have 
not have any hope. There was no antiretrovirals that would keep people alive. Whereas nowadays, when people are diagnosed, generally speaking, they're on one tablet a day and often can, after time, forget they even have HIV. I had a young man come in to me today for an STI screen and towards the end of it, I asked him, was he on PrEP for HIV prevention? He said, no, no, I have HIV. He completely had forgotten to tell me that fact because it was just such a thing at the back of his mind because he was living his normal life um, on his antiretrovirals, taking his tablet every day, the way you would if you had blood pressure, high cholesterol, or just taking a vitamin tablet. So it's it's something now people with HIV who are diagnosed in 2023, like Aoife, can expect to have a normal life expectancy, can expect to have healthy, normal pregnancies, can expect to deliver children without passing on HIV, can expect to have normal sexual relationships without passing on HIV to partners, because as we know now, U equals U. And if you're undetectable and on your treatment, you can't pass it on. Mm. Interesting though, um, Robbie, when we talk about this, do you still believe despite everything that Ashling has said, that there still is a huge stigma around it in terms of people being open, um, talking about uh, the condition and maybe feeling comfortable mm. around discussing it. Yeah, so when we talk about stigma, there's many forms of stigma, okay? So there's an enacted stigma, so how people discriminate against us because we live with HIV. And then there's perceived stigma. I don't want to tell my mom because she won't love me anymore, or I don't want to tell my boyfriend because he'll leave me. So they're real, that's the fear-based one. But then the other stigma is how we feel about ourselves, right? And um, like when I got HIV, I was like, no one will ever love me anymore, or no one wants to touch me again. And how am I ever gonna, I don't know, just go through life happy? And um, the big process for me, for all people live HIV, for the thousands of us in Ireland live HIV, is overcoming that internalized stigma, realizing that you're not dirty, that you deserve to be loved, that you can have a great sex life, as Dr. Ashlyn Lai said. Um, so overcoming that is the hardest part. Yeah. But the, what a stigma really does to us, and could be the most damaging, is that it hides us away. We isolate ourselves. We put ourselves into a viral closet where we're so afraid to tell people about our status because we're just fear of being discriminated against or taught less of. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do as activists yeah. is try to talk to all the people living with HIV saying, mm -hmm. you're not the problem. You deserve to be loved. You shouldn't be in a closet. Yeah, but Aoife, you still, you had to have that big conversation, didn't you, with your parents? Yes. How, how did you broach it with your mom and, the, and then your dad? And what was their response? Because if we're talking about, well, fun, first, um, they're your parents and, yeah. and the worries that they would have. And then that generation gap as well and what they think yeah. when they hear the word HIV. Yeah, it was a funny one. My mum found my meds in my drawer in my room while I was on holidays. She went in looking for a nail file and stumbled upon a big bag of meds and she was like, oh my God, what are these? And she went on the Google and she <laughs> found out what they were for. And so when I came back, she did ask me and I was open and honest and I said, look, I've wanted to tell you for a while, I didn't know how to broach the subject. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise that she found them. And so I told her and she'd obviously done a little bit of research before we had this conversation because she knew a bit more about it. But we spoke recently, only last week, about, about what she knew about HIV before I was diagnosed. And she said that she didn't know women could actually get it through sex. Mm -hmm. She thought that you could get it, you know, through needle using or, you know, through a blood transfusion, but she didn't know women could actually contract it through sex because in, their, in, in the 80s and the 90s, like my parents' generation thought it was a gay man's disease. Unfortunately, that was just yeah. how it was. The stigma's so, still there. You know, as a heterosexual woman, do you believe yours is a story that's not really heard? Definitely, yeah. I, a lot of women don't want to come out and talk about it. And I think there's just... And why is that? I don't know. It's scary. Like, there's a lot of judgment around having an STI. There's still this, so much stigma and it's impossible to 
dating is difficult, definitely, as well. People don't want to date you when they found out you're positive. Um, Have you found that? Um, I'm only recently single, so I, I was... I was in a relationship when I got diagnosed, so mm -hmm. I've only been recently back on the dating apps. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on them, and trust me, people still want to date you yeah. when they hit that deposit. It's okay. A few people have been really positive and really sweet, and then there was one guy last week who asked to go on a date with me, and then when he found out I was positive, he said he didn't want to see me anymore. So this, this, it's up, it, there's up and downs. <laughs> but it, I wasn't upset. I was like, oh, I kind of expected it to be honest. <laughs> I was like, there's going to be one that's going to say no. But no, there has been some positives. So we'll see. It's, it's early days for my dating life. I haven't been on any yet, so. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just really struck by how um, we're talking about breaking down stigmas and having that conversation. It's still really brave to have that conversation um, because, and to come on TV tonight and talk about your own experience. And I think it's a, a, so helpful to anyone out there who is struggling with it and is worried about, you know, what the future may hold and what will that entail. Yeah. Um, I'm also thinking about, you know, what your mum kind of immediately made that association between HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Um, when, when you brought that up. Is that something that you've had to have a conversation with people about going, <laughs> oh, no, in fact, because I have HIV, that, that it doesn't, it's not going to, you know, result in me having AIDS because of the treatments that are out there. Yeah. We're in a different place now. It was funny, I was saying to Robbie last week, I went to the dentist and on the pre-check form, it was like, oh, have you ever been exposed to the AIDS virus? And I was so livid. I was so angry. I went up and I was like, I don't have AIDS. AIDS is not a virus. I have HIV, yes, but you have to change your forms. And then they kind of just kind of gave me this excuse about the company and I thought they weren't going to change. So I went home and I sent a big long email <laughs> complaining and then they rang me back. They were very apologetic, very kind. And they said they were changing their forms immediately and they were so sorry they upset me. So there is work to be done, but people are willing to change, which is great. Um, Ashling, to talk about it, you know, access to testing and to, I suppose, treatments, is it very much on, dependent on your ability to pay, on your ability to, no, you no, know, no. find access and to, to get yourself in the right programme? Or is all of that much more available in Ireland than you, you, would, you might think? No, so HIV treatment is absolutely free and accessible to all in Ireland. The problem is getting diagnosed. So um, it's just people presenting for testing. Now, Ireland now has, it's one of the first countries in the world to have free at-home testing for all STIs um, through SH24. So that's been rolled out and we're, um, you know, doing really well. I think there was 800 and something bloodborne viruses picked up last year alone and 56,000 tests were sent out around the country to people who may not have got tested otherwise. So um, it is about knowing your status and getting diagnosed. As soon as you're diagnosed, you're put on treatment very rapidly. So usually within the first couple of weeks to for your own health and to prevent onward transmission. Because there's a risk, of course, without diagnosis that then, you know, mm -hmm. it does spread because it, it, the treatment is all important here. The, yeah, the treatment is prevention to prevent it spreading, but also for your own health. So you want to get on the treatment as soon as possible before your CD4 count, your immune system drops to a weakened level. So we can keep you at a higher level of immune system, effectively a normal immune system, the earlier you're diagnosed the better for multiple reasons. So it's all about knowing your status and not being afraid to test. And as soon as you test and or have a positive diagnosis, you'll get referred to your local um, HIV centre. There's multiple centres around the country mm -hmm. and it's all free. Everything's right. free for everybody. Uh, and you're big on, I suppose, um, being an activist in this area yes. and affecting positive change. I know it's pause vibe, uh -huh. but you think, you know, that, that's even within your community. That's, yes. how, that's how you refer to, to HIV. How important is that now? And do you think there's still a lot of barriers to break down? 
Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Unfortunately, after uh, diagnosis, still a lot of people go through a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. These days, I think young people, thanks to changes like U equals U and better education, better medication, um, maybe process that faster, but it's still a, a problem. Um, and while, while we're on the subject, one of the things we want to put energy behind is our Pride Parade this year. We're going to be marching in front of the George Float with members of our Pause 5 tribe, who are people like us who are out about living with HIV. And we're going to come together to, to try to make okay. more people aware of the rising okay. numbers. Best of luck. Uh, with that and thank you all so thank much you. for coming yeah. on the programme tonight we really do appreciate it that is it from us my thanks to my panel here uh, from all the late team here good night take care